Good evening and welcome to Tetrapod Zoology, the podcast, episode two. Today is the 13th of February, 2013, and you're about to hear the dulcet tones of Darren Nash. Hi, Darren. Hi, John. Let's do this right this time. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, I've had a pretty bad day, actually, but yeah, I'm feeling really great now. Why have you had a bad day? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good story. Okay, corrections and clarifications. Corrections. That's what we're going to do. Because you made some dreadful blunders last podcast, and (laughs) now we have to correct them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole please yourself for Lodgny section, that was a bit of a dreadful blunder, but we'll forget about that. Well, I have to confess, I deliberately tried to make it confusing because I thought it was confusing, which wasn't very helpful. Good work. <laughs> yeah. I, I should, I, some, you know, we've had a lot of really interesting feedback from our, our first um, episode, of course. And um, one of the things that uh, didn't occur to me, which is pretty obvious, is that, you know, if you're going to talk about something difficult, then make sure that you have the information to hand or you're googling or something while you're talking and i don't know maybe it would have been useful to maybe it's sometimes useful to have resources to you know there on the screen while you're talking about complex issues sometimes sometimes it's good maybe sometimes it's not yeah but sometimes it can make it too um uh, stayed too much like a lecture so yeah you know people want to hear some of the mistakes True, true. So something else we, we, we spoke, of course, about as dark kids last time, and we were saying uh, we were discussing what was known of the big as dark kids, like the Quetzalcoatlus North Roby holotype. And I think we more or less agreed that there is no um, uh, distal wing material known from the big Quetzalcoatlus. Yeah, completely wrong. Complete, yeah, got completely, completely wrong. wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so thanks to Mark Wynn for this discussion I had. I mean, um, the big problem there is, as as everybody knows, is that the material of neither the big Quetzalcoatlus nor the small ones has ever been properly described. But the um, the big one, as well as the humerus that's been figured, there's also a radius and ulna. There's uh, wrist elements. There's part of the the um, metacarpal for the wing finger, and there is bones from the wing finger as well. So that's actually quite a lot. Yes. Well, if it was described. Yes, but it, it exists. And, and it we, does we, exist, we yes. Made, we made have... a mistake there. Yes, yeah. we were talking about glass frogs, yeah. and we were discussing why it, why it is that some glass frogs are translucent, transparent, and, and I said something about whether, I wondered whether the um, adults guard larvae within the water, which quite a few neurons do. Parents, particularly often male parents, do actually stay with tadpoles and guard them. And and I said that was maybe the case for glass frogs. And and I think I corrected myself, but I want to confirm that was incorrect. <laughs> that was incorrect. I'm very too. sorry. Glass frogs do not guard their tadpoles. <laughs> no, they guard their eggs. They guard, so their, they, guard they, their eggs. Yeah. They guard their eggs, and their eggs are laid on leaves which overhang water. But they do not guard their tadpoles, as far as we know. So it's still a mystery. Still a complete, mystery. still a complete mystery. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the pterosaurs again, I I think I sort of gave the impression that I thought it was likely that large pterosaurs like Quetzalcoatlus were flightless, whereas actually I don't think that is likely. And it would be very exciting if we found a flightless pterosaur. I just sort of wanted to make that clear. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something I, I think I mentioned this last time, but it's something we really have in mind when we're looking at this giant material from Romania we really want to test this possibility of flightlessness but um yeah 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 okay so what have you been up to well well the 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 Darko paper the plus one paper on this new Romanian Estarkid of course spoke about that last time that's now that's now been published and our work on that animal is related to work on other Estarkid material that we have from from Romania, um, given that there are small Asdarkids from Romania like Eurasdarko, and there are big ones like Hatsagopteryx, um, I, I, this is kind of a silly thing to do, isn't it? Talk about stuff you're working on because often you can't discuss all the details of the things you are working on. But it's a teaser. Working, it's a teaser. We are working on other Asdarkid material from Romania. It's working on this together with uh, my, my colleagues I work with in Romania, that's Gareth Dyke and Matthias Vermeer, and Mark Witten is involved and other people are involved as well. And I have to say at the moment, this, this, this other Asdarkid project is possibly one of the most exciting things that I think I've been involved in. And um, uh, it will substantially augment our understanding of Asdarkid 
diversity and paleobiology. So um, that's very cool. That's just happened. That's going through the system right now, working on that manuscript at the moment. That does sound um, exciting. I might have to um, ask you about it and then edit it out, but I won't yes. do that because if I accidentally leave it in, that's bad. <laughs> I'll ask you when we're finished. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, you can, we'll talk about it afterwards. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, I've been doing some stuff on on sauropod biology with uh, Matt Weddell and uh, and Mike Taylor as well, and I think that's really cool as well. Some really interesting stuff we had to say on. Uh, again, paleobiology and behaviour seems to be something that, that I keep on returning to at the moment, uh, a lot at the moment. Um, in terms of systematics and taxonomy and the sort of boring descriptive work that we have to do in, in paleontology, I monographed uh, Ea tyrannus, the theropod that I described for my PhD, monographed that, um, well, completed the, the full monographic description at the start of last year. I actually submitted it in February 2012. Uh, working together with Andrea Chow of uh, the, the the awesome Therapoda blog, and um, that has, after a year, has just come back from review. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I've got to get busy with the Tyrannus was again. It, was it's, it uh, very long and boring? Yeah, it's it's a, like a hundred and fifty-seven page manuscript. So, <laughs> uh, there, there, there's as always with delayed academic projects. There's a whole story there that I uh, I shouldn't talk about in public, but um, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, Dave Hone and I have just finished uh, a manuscript on um, this this whole this whole little avenue of research that involves sexual selection, um, sociosexual display, and all that kind of stuff in dinosaurs and other Mesozoic animals. Uh -huh. We've just finished a project on that, and um, and I, I think I think that that whole subject I and mean, whatever group of of uh, Whatever group of archosaurs you're interested in, I mean, it applies specifically to pterosaurs and uh, dinosaurs, but it applies to other animals as well. I think any anyone who's interested in those animals, you know, birds, theropods, sauropods, uh, horned dinosaurs, hadrosaurs, it applies to it applies to all of those and how we think about their paleobiology. And um, uh, I'm really looking forward to this paper coming out. It's uh, probably going to appear in Journal of Zoology um, because over the last couple of days. Um, Yale um, have just broadcast, have just put online on YouTube their um, pitted debate between Jack Horner and Nick Longridge. Have you, have you seen this? I didn't see the one with Nick Longridge. What's what's the um, debate there? Well, it's the Toroceratops debate. It's the, the yeah, issue yeah. of uh, how how do we where are we with regard to the debate as to the idea that Triceratops morphs into. Morphed into Torosaurus. <laughs> that was that was that was a transformer. Sound that, effect, was, yeah. that was a transformer. They're yeah, called yeah, transformers, yeah. not transmorphers. Right. Okay. Well, let's just pretend for the purpose of this. Well, whatever. This this idea of ontogenetic morphing. I'm just it's trying to be accurate. Horner. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. So, so yeah, it's Horner presenting obviously the ontogenetic morphing hypothesis, and Nick Longridge saying. Uh, I think doing a pretty good job of saying, well, you know, if there's overwhelming evidence for that, then I'll go with it. But at the moment, the evidence isn't convincing, and the evidence we have better suggests that Torosaurus and Triceratops are different dinosaurs, that different, different, but closely related taxa. And um, without giving away too much, what I do want to say is that the the behavioural and biological ramifications of the morphing hypothesis haven't yet been fully realised by um, Many of the people interested in this stuff, and this uh, manuscript that um, that Dave Hone and I have just uh, put together, is yeah, is, is is not centered on that, but it is very very relevant to that. Relevant. So, um, when are we likely to see it? Uh, turnaround time for papers is normally like a year once we're in the system, isn't it? So, uh, so we're talking a year. I'd give it a year, ish, which is the name of the That's movie. That's a very system. long teaser. Yes, um, that's yeah. That, it's the long game. I play the long game. You play yeah. the long game. Yeah. I've always done that. Let's hope our listeners yeah. do. Ted Zoo, what's been on Ted Zoo? We've had killer tits, <laughs> murderous um, tits, <laughs> um, crocodiles attacking elephant trunks. Yeah, the latest thrilling instalment in the uh, Petrels of the World series. Uh, um, there's. I haven't finished the next 
Glass Frogs article that I wanted to. I think, I don't know, is that it? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, well, well that's Euros, all I've got. Eurostar. Yeah, 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 yeah. We talked about that quite a bit on the last podcast. Um, and if there's something you want to add, then we can do that. No, no. Well, we're done. I think that's enough yeah. as dark kids for one podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Sick so let's land, let's let's just do them in order then. I've got them written down: Crocs versus elephants. I have Crocs a confession. Yeah, I have a confession. I couldn't watch any of the videos. What you were too shocked? It's just nasty. They offended you. I, I, things biting noses, crocodiles getting stamped to death. I didn't. I didn't really want to see this. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Uh, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't graphic. There was no. Uh, there was no death or dismemberment involved. It's not so much um, the um, the graphicness of it. It's the I empathise with both uh, both parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah, I, I, I get that. It's a nasty situation to find yourself in from either side, and completely unnecessary. No one gets anything out of it. It's just awful. It's just awful. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of the interesting thing about it. I mean, if we've got four observations here then obviously as i said in the article we can guarantee that there this probably has happened on more than four occasions in history so is it is it a strategy that is sometimes profitable for crocs do 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 crocs actually sometimes win a tasty chunk of trunk or, or <laughs> um you know or if i mean one one of the photographs there the 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 crocodile is uh, grabbing a baby and uh, you could well um you could well believe that a uh, uh, a big strong crocodile could succeed in uh, in killing or drowning a juvenile elephant if if that elephant wasn't lucky enough to be rescued by its mother or other herd members or whatever pretty, pretty risky strategy though if that's what they're trying yeah, to do isn't yeah, it i mean yeah yeah, so this is something that came up in the comments. I mean, is are, are, some people are saying, well, surely, I mean, I think I said this, is, is surely this is a mistake. The crocodiles are grabbing something thinking, thinking that it's the snout of a wildebeest or something. But on the other hand, you know, we know that um, uh, crocodilians have incredibly sensitive um, mechanical receptors in their snouts, these organs called dome pressure receptors, which allow them to, you know, sense pressure changes and, you know, uh, basically have this really um, strong uh, sensory mechanism in, in, in the water. I mean, you, you, that, kind of, that kind of makes you think, surely they're not going to be mistaking the nearness of an elephant <laughs> of all yeah, things. But perhaps they're just a bit stupid. I mean, they are, aren't they? They're not. Uh, maybe well, they know. just attack anything that comes into the water. It's just very unlucky for them if it happens to be one of the biggest things around. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the intelligence of crocodilians is something that's sort of, you know, different, different, different opinions from different people. Some people, some people say that the speed at which you can train crocs and alligators indicates they are actually pretty, in inverted commas, smart. And other people say that they're, yeah, they're just automatons. And mm. I don't know. I, I, I don't think they're that dumb. And I, I do think there is some sense of premeditation in these attacks. I don't think, I don't think they are just randomly grabbing stuff because in one of the, in the second video, so there's two elephants wallowing uh, in, in mucking around in the water right up to, you know, neck depth. Um, this, this video is really impressive. All of a sudden, this uh, one and a half minutes into the video, the elephant roars and kind of lifts its head out of the water with the crocodile latched onto its trunk. But really early in the footage, you see the crocodile just, um, you know, a meter or two away from the elephant. So it's kind of hanging around there the whole time until it actually decides to grab the trunk. So um, it's very difficult to know. Yeah, Perhaps they get confused and don't understand that the trunk belongs to the elephant. They think it's an independent entity that's small enough for them to handle. The mysteries of what goes on in the mind of a crocodile. Exactly. I mean, that's that's a really interesting speculation, and uh, I can you can really imagine though that in the the first video, which shows an elephant, um, it's it's an adult elephant and a juvenile with another adult in the background. And I thought the juvenile was the one that was going to get grabbed, but it's the tip of the trunk of this adult female. Her, the tip of a trunk gets gets grabbed. You can understand that if the crocodile is under the water, sees the tip of a trunk, then isn't it pretty reasonable to assume that's going to be the snout of a wildebeest or impala or whatever? You can understand that that's the sort of thing that um, that they would grab just just on the off chance. But when you're talking about them grabbing the trunk 
of an elephant when the whole elephant is submerged and only a couple of meters away from them i find it very hard to think that the crocodile wasn't aware of the fact that there was a, like a five ton mega herbivore there um yeah i don't know fascinating yeah. behavior and and the thing that i found particularly interesting about it is the fact that uh, as, as i just said you know we've got four observations here now for a really extraordinary bit of behavior like this which everyone's going to assume is very rare that's actually quite a lot and and that's four so that's four occasions when it's been filmed or photographed well we all know that rare things are seen more than they're photographed so it must have happened it must have been seen by people more than four occasions then of course it must have actually happened more than four occasions and um, that's kind of why i was inspired to produce that silly illustration of the uh yeah, well, extinct animals for four times i mean yeah it captured it hundreds and hundreds of times at least um yeah not yeah yeah this this all this all emerged from a, a conversation i was having with matt woodell and, and mike taylor they just happened to mention it in passing and i was like well you do realize because it turns out a lot of people have seen one still from one of the sequences of photographs and aren't aware there's actually a whole sequence where we know exactly what happened um, the the case the the famous one that happened in um, Zambia, um, where the Lu, Luangwa South Luangwa National Park. The um, uh, again, it's a, a, a an adult female, a mother, who's uh, lifting this croc out of the water. But there's a whole sequence where she actually backs up the bank, pulled the crocodile clean out of the water. Um, the baby elephant actually trips up, trips over the crocodile. But um, the both we know that both the elephants were okay and the crocodile was okay. The elephant didn't they didn't like trample it or anything. Not on this particular occasion, anyway. Uh -huh. So yeah, yeah. Well, um, okay. Let's move on. Murderous tits. Murderous tits. Yeah. Um, again, this is another thing that arose through kind of conversations slash social media. As uh, a, 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 a thing I saw on Facebook, our mutual excellent friend Vilas and Conan. Um, happened to um, um, put on Facebook a link to a Finnish newspaper article about uh, great tits. The article's kind of a, a ambiguous. But it, it, it said that there was more than one great tits. There were a number of great tits, so more than one, that were killing red poles. Red poles are a com common red poles. These are finches, you know, close reds are gold finches and so on. And um, there seemed to be a lot of dead red poles. They'd all been killed uh, in nasty ways by like pecks to the back of the head and the eyes and stuff. And uh, and it was established that great tits were the um, the cause of these deaths. And I think uh, is in one garden there were I don't know something like twenty dead red poles and the the whole point of this article which obviously is in finnish but using the magic of google translate i was able to just about understand it myself um god it's awful <laughs> um, google translate hilarious um but the art the, the main point of the article was was omg tits kill red poles who'd have thunk There's no way <laughs> and i was like well hold on this is actually you know this pretty awesome i'm not denying it. it's pretty awesome and incredible but this is a, a well-established bit of behavior for this particular species the great tit is is well known to be a uh, an, an, an occasional predator of other passerine birds and um um there was a paper published in um uh, i think 2009 on great tits killing bats sorry it was the digital version was 2009 the the, the published version was 2010 this paper saying that uh great tits they find hibernating bats they pull the bats out of their little hibernation um uh, the little crevices they're hiding in, in caves and they then they kill the bats they smash their heads in and they eat their brains and uh, and this are uh, this this paper <clears throat> also referred to you know predatory behavior uh, other kinds of predatory behavior where great tits killed you know birds and, and other and other uh, animals so and I was aware already from the literature that there were cases where great tits, uh, you know, they're, they're well known for scavenging on mammal carcasses and uh, they've been seen um, grabbing really small passerines like gold crests, you know, these little tiny uh, five gram uh, European passerines. Um, and they're, they're, there's, there's stories about them, you know, eating human carcasses and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of, it's been known for a long time that the great tit is a, 
an occasional nasty predator of other birds and also small mammals and and, the, and an occasional eater of carrion and so on. So I just wanted to say, yeah, this article in the Finnish newspaper, very cool. These photographs are great, but this is not a new, um, you know, hold the... F- stop everything this changes everything it's not one of those discoveries it's another one of those things where this is awesome but we already we already know this we know these well, birds are you already knew it <laughs> yeah. but i didn't know yeah. that and well, many me, many uh, people didn't know that i'm sure well well they need to get out and read a bit more about tits that's all i can say and uh, but 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 of course the 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 coup de the no not the coup de grace can be the wrong term the icing on the cake. We're through yeah. the looking glass. All these gorgeous kind of phrases. The, the coolest thing about this um, study is th- th- about this this uh, this Finnish set of observations is that um, be- because the the photographer Lassi Kujala, I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing that right, but this photographer um, obviously wanted to try and film this this behaviour. They wanted to film great tits uh, killing red poles and they succeeded and they they have we now have online this uh, short video less than a minute i think have you seen this no you seen the video no i haven't you seen should the video. check it out it's, uh, i should check it it's, out it's really interesting because um the 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 tit is similar in size to the animal it kills to the to the red pole and it basically kills it by sort of grabbing it around about the head. There's lots of like fluttering and uh, the, the great tit sort of trying to, you know, maintain stability on top of the red pole. And it basically just sort of pecks it in the head, pecks it at the back of the head and in the eyes and uh, kills it, kills it that way. And it's kind of, it's keeping hold of it very tightly all the time with its, you know, the, with its strong feet. Um, it's pretty reminiscent of the predatory behavior that you see in, hawks like you know sparrowhawks and so on i mean they just latch in to prey and wait for it to tire and then they kind of often start eating it while it's still alive it's very much a kind of um maniraptoran-esque um killing killing style Def- definitely worth watching and and reminds me of another article i wrote some years ago on tetsu which was called passerine birds fight dirty a la velociraptor and it was kind of a sort of a comparison between like the fighting pose of great tits and other passerines and say the pose of the the fighting dinosaurs where we've got the prototheratops and the velociraptor mm. locked in combat so um yeah yeah that's pretty that's pretty interesting oh it's also you know this is not a typical behavior for them um so i presume it's sort of incipient predation mm. it'd be interesting to see where they go evolutionary evolutionarily I- I, I can't help, but I didn't write this down, but I can't help but comparing it to human cannibalism. So it's something that isn't ordinary, and most of the time it's not there. But during times of you know uh, extreme hardship, I, I'm, I'm sure you know I'm sure everyone's got their own opinion of of, of cannibalism in our species. But there yeah, I think times... it's great. <laughs> I'm pro cannibal. Probably every single population of humans would resort to cannibalism if things, you know, got that bad. And maybe it's a similar thing with great tears. It's like they're always able to do it. The ability to do it is always there. But most of the time, they never have to go that that extra. They they never have to, you know, um, they never need to do it. But snowy winters where food is thin on the ground and where they can use this ability. Um, I, I did, however, like the fact that some people uh, in in the comments. Um, uh, Jersey Dajovitz, one of my sort of regular commenters, he was saying that um, I think it was I think it was him actually, um, could have been someone else, but but some people saying that the um, that there's this idea among some birders that it's only certain great tits that are like the the, the killers, and the majority of the population aren't, but there's just some that are sort of able to able psycho great tits. To... <laughs> what? Psycho great tits. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I don't think there's anything, <laughs> anything wrong with them. But um, I guess I, what I find interesting here is that, um, from the evolution point of view, is that presumably this is how predation gets started, right? This is how you get on the road to being a, or it's one of the ways yeah. you get on the road to being a, a full-time predator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you think about any any uh, remarkable behaviour that's ever evolved. It's got to start with individuals 
adapted for something else one day doing something unusual yeah yeah and you can see it and i think that's quite interesting okay let's move on to um tube no seabirds yeah tube no seabirds uh petrels so um i i i say it petrels i did go through a phase where um i was pronouncing it petrels petrels no that's that's just terrible you can't say that well that's how apparently that's how you're supposed to say it but i don't think i don't know if anybody does because you know (laughs) petrel comes from um so there's a there's a group of tube no seabirds called storm petrels and they're famous for kind of like they do this sort of dancing over the water surface and for that reason people compare them to saint peter who i don't know he's some dude in the bible or something who like walks on the water (laughs) i thought it was jesus i thought that was jesus yeah (laughs) and for that reason knows jesus yeah well it was called these birds were called saint peter owls which means little saint peters and uh, and so that's why that the word petrol petrol comes from the Peter of Saint Peter Saint Peter else so it should be Peter else but everyone oh, says yeah. petrol mm, no that's that's just awful and we can't so, stick to the roots of words to pronounce them it doesn't it doesn't work you end up with some really awful things um, yes so uh, that's right <laughs> that's right <laughs> um, yeah so it's quite yeah, so t- a long article and it mentions a lot of things i'm wondering we should try yeah. and pick out the theme here what's the theme why are we writing this about tube nose birds and what's the what's the central theme here uh well i i, I so the, i have to say the genesis for this article is the fact that i i i, I think petrels are really cool really awesome and there's loads of really is one of these groups where there's loads of really neat bits of form function correlation the fact that you see certain tail shapes wing shapes bill shapes uh the 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 morphology of feet and hips and stuff and people have done some really awesome work linking those to particular lifestyles i was attracted to this one paper in particular by uh, two authors called clement amy and i thought wow let's make a great a great little article let's just talk about form function correlation in petrels but then i thought well hold on there's so much to say about um fulmars there's so much to say about shearwaters there's so much to say about the prosolaria petrels there's so much to say about the prions before you know it you've ended up with a bloated multi-part monster where individual articles like this one part seven this is part seven in my attempt to get to all the <laughs> petrels i mean this this article is i don't know over three thousand words it's it's a monster and if you want to if you want me to say what the theme is to it well it's just basically Let's talk about shearwaters. <laughs> Let's get through all of them. And there's a lot to say. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess I'm just trying things... to avoid another sprawling thing like the plesiosaur phylogeny, which got very confused. Um, so perhaps we can. Yeah. Don't um, worry. Don't worry. What, what, one, one thing I, I, you know, I, 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 I want to say, um, one of the one of the reasons that um, I think Tetsu is has been successful is that there are many stories about um uh, diversity where like the the, there's so many um sort of i don't know how to explain this really but there's there's so many historical aspects to the diversity um the morphology and the behavior that we see today and with birds in particular, actually, it seems that a lot of people that are interested in these animals don't think of these things in a kind of historical sense. I meet people who are fascinated by birds all the time, and they only really they're only really interested in like modern aspects of behavior biology, you know, what it eats and what its migratory habits are and stuff. And it's like, well, hold on, you know, the the reason these birds live here is because they've that they're there for a reason due to the you know the the oceanic conditions that they've evolved in and um with with petrels in particular i think there are some really cool really like big historical stories that um that just kind of um well think things that i try to explore in the article and that i, that I make that, that that i think make them more interesting so yeah i mean i think the experience of people that uh, often people are more interested in the pattern than the explanation right so they just they look at the patterns of things rather than the reasons for the patterns i suppose it's yeah it's okay but that's not what tetsu gives us gives us the pattern and the explanation 
Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. It's, uh, it's very kind. But yeah, there's there's some great stuff here. There's some some things that I've re- really really captured my imagination. Um, the fact that you know there are some groups of shearwaters where we know that they were you know far more abundant in say the, the eastern coast of North America in the recent past, and then they're not there now due to massive changes that have occurred in sea level. You know, we're talking about sea levels sea level rises of like 21 meters which obviously have had a catastrophic effect on um coastally nesting seabird populations um we have this complicated story of the the uh, the manx shearwater and all its relatives what they're doing in the the north atlantic and the mediterranean region and then and then the fact that once these birds have evolved this particular anatomy um it's no difficulty for an individual bird to you know literally fly over a matter of you know a couple of weeks from the north atlantic to the the south atlantic and if it can do that then once it's in the south atlantic well it's actually no trouble for it to get into the indian ocean and once it's done that it's actually no trouble for it to get to australasia and there are many cases in these in these long-ranging pelagic seabirds where that is exactly what they do individuals sometimes literally end up on the wrong side of the wrong ocean there are um, th- these birds are hard to differentiate in the field many of them look very similar their 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 key you know diagnostic you know bits of plumage whatever uh, the, the shape of them are often hard to you know it's hard to tell one species apart from another but there are loads of cases where people report a species in completely the wrong place so for example the manx shearwater mostly at north atlantic bird but people have claimed sightings of them from the north pacific from off the coast of say california so is that is that actually right or were they mistakes or were they, you know, misidentifying other species? And it turns out in these cases that they're not mistakes. Some some of these birds, so in this particular case, some Manx shearwaters from the North Atlantic have gotten into the South Atlantic, have gone round Cape Horn, round the Tierra del Fuego, and have then migrated north when they need to, but they've migrated north in the wrong ocean. They've gone north mm. up the Pacific, so they're north up the Atlantic. And, and likewise, on the other side of Africa, the, there are species that go into accidentally, in quotes, accidentally go into the Indian Ocean and then end up traveling up the east coast of Africa and then get into the Red Sea to get back into the Mediterranean. Where they, whereas what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to go up and down the west coast of Africa in the Atlantic. And um, that is the kind of stuff that explains how distributions can be crazily extended over, I mean, think about what we're talking about, stuff that's been recorded in, 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 you know, decades. What does this mean in terms of deep history? You can Indeed, understand. Yeah, yeah any, any group of animals that can travel this far, you're talking about them, the possibility of them achieving global dominance within, within decades of them evolving the, the sort of morphology that's characteristic for them. So it's like as yeah. soon as you become pelagic, long-winged seabird, if you can imagine, I mean, we know this isn't how evolution works, but if you imagine one day there is a, the first shearwater, it's like within a couple of years, spread out from its centre of origin to, uh, yeah, to dominate the world. And uh, I think that is, a, is an exciting concept. And, and the fact that we can see it pretty much, uh, not within our lifetimes, but within living memory is... Uh, Yes. It's very cool. Um, I seem to remember a paper by, was it a paper or a presentation by Mark Witten and Mike Habib on something like this with pterosaurs? Yeah. And looking at the sorts of ranges and flight patterns and uh, for large pelagic pterosaurs, they just, the whole world was their oyster. <laughs> exactly. They, they have published, published on this, how far and how fast giant Asdarkids could fly. Yeah, that's the one. Yes. Um, and which just, um, geographic boundaries don't really mean much to you once you're up around three meter wingspan and pelagic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and to, uh, you know, having mentioned giant um, uh, things and sticking with tube nose seabirds, I, I also couldn't help but include this brief section on albatrosses because um, it's it's fairly well known that quite a few shearwaters are proficient divers. Um, now, I always thought. You're going back a few years. I I knew that some shearwaters sort of dipped in and out of the water, so you know they're within the, the top fifty centimeters or top meter of, of the ocean. But um, that I, I was blown away when I when I learned um, 
fairly recently that there are quite a few shearwater species that I, I think I, fir I first learned this from the, the BBC series Blue Planet. The fact that some shearwaters dive down to depths of as much as 20 meters and, mm. and doing this behavior called aqua flying. They're flying at depth like, I don't know, not a million miles away from what orcs and penguins do. But these are birds that are built like, well, they're petrels, you know, they're built like albatrosses. And the fact that albatrosses do this too, we have, um, there are three main groups of albatrosses and members of all three of those groups, even including the great albatrosses, like the wandering albatross, the royal albatross, even birds like that dive down to several meters in the ocean. As much as at the moment, the recorded, the maximum dive depth for an albatross for a light mantled sooty albatross is 12 meters, I think. And so that's our maximum recorded depth. So you can assume that, you know, that they probably do dive a bit deeper, maybe much deeper. Maybe we shouldn't be too surprised by this diving behavior because perhaps there just isn't enough food within a foot of the surface to sustain large populations of birds. Perhaps it's just necessary that these sorts of animals dive. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, well, it's something that if birds are going to be diving um, to grab prey from the surface, then there are many occasions when they're going to have to. They, they can't do everything within the top metre or so of the, of the surface. But again, it's one of those things where I, I, one of the things I, I, I always have a problem with in historical biology, paleontology, is people come up with rules as to what animals can and cannot do, ideas that animals only do things because of special conditions, like pterosaurs could only get so big because the atmosphere was different back then, or dinosaurs could only grow so big because, you know, gravitational forces were different back then, all that, those kinds of explanations. I think that the living world shows us that animals do what they do because they can. So as soon as you this 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 is going to sound very similar to what I just said about the distances that petrels and other birds are able to cover. As soon as you evolve a morphology that allows you to dive a couple of meters deep in the ocean, well, we can dive a couple of meters deep, and most of us do that regularly. But we also know that people we know of people that can free hold, free dive to a hundred meters. I think the record for um, non-assisted dive is somewhere around about hundred meters. Yeah, yeah. and um, any one of us could not dive to 100 meters but could dive much much deeper than we do if our lives depended on it mm. then i'm sure that a lot of us with a with the right amount of time and training could uh, could you know achieve results that we ordinarily consider pretty spectacular and for birds if they're able to dive two or three meters deep in the ocean well why can't they make it down to five or ten meters and um it, 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 I also think we've we've kind of underestimated the abilities of a lot of these animals. I mean, for plunge divers like gannets and for shallow divers like some of the orcs, like razorbills and so on, um, for a long time, people thought that the maximum dive limits were not that impressive. They were certainly less than, less than 10 meters. But then um, um, better data showed that, I'm actually going to try and look it up online. I can't remember. I'm totally useless at remembering figures. I know that the maximum dive depths have proved to be okay. So we've got 22 meters for a gannet, whereas it was thought that it was thought originally that um, yeah, that all dives were within like you know five meters, less than 10 meters. In fact, there's a, I've just I've just noticed there's another one here, 2008 record for a gannet of 35 meters. So you've you've seen what gannets do? They they plunge at speed like arrows poof, into yeah. the into the water surface. You can understand that momentum carries them a few meters down. But yeah, when conditions um, require it, they can do this. Getting down to 35 meters, I mean that is just ridiculous. I think the um the the desire amongst paleontologists but all i think a lot of scientists is to put bounds on what behavior you could get right i mean that's part of science is to sort of rule things out so yeah. the narrower we can get something the more we feel like we've done science on it <laughs> yes. yeah, 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 yeah. um unfortunately it doesn't really work very well um in zoology and paleozoology it, it becomes too restrictive and too easy to be restrictive because we can't falsify a lot of these restrictions we put on 
well, extinct animals especially, but well, even living exactly. animals, because yeah. we don't observe them all the time. Yeah, and I think um, this, if you, if you look at the comments, that there are now quite, quite a lot of comments on that, that petrol article, um, it's kind of evolved into a bit of a discussion about diving and aqua flying behavior in in pterosaurs i think for fossil animals this is um, this is a theme that we're going to come back to again and again i've no doubt but people tend to be really conservative in what they think fossil animals can do think that these the claims are conservative because if you know living animals it's like well hold on living animals do ridiculous and dangerous things all the time so we've got a bunch of paleontologists i mean there are, you can find books on pterosaurs which will tell you that pterosaurs couldn't do anything in or under the water. They couldn't swim, they couldn't dive, they couldn't go under the water because they were too pneumatic, they're too buoyant, their skeletons were too flimsy. Um, yet, on the other hand, you know, people that have thought about this and have looked at the anatomy of these animals in detail say, well, hold on, if a, if a pelican can, you know, plunge dive from 30 meters up and go under the surface, if an albatross can dive to 12 meters beneath the surface of the water, if a gannet can get down to 35 meters, are you really sure that animals like pterosaurs of certain kinds couldn't do anything on the water at all? I mean, these, some, as, yeah. as you know, some people are now challenging this, aren't they? They're saying that some pterosaurs were routinely capable of swimming or taking off from the water surface or even of diving and swimming under the surface. It'd be interesting to know whether that is actually sort of a necessary thing because there just isn't enough food, as, we, as I said earlier, within a metre of the surface or whatever a pterosaur could reach into. Less than that, probably even a large one. Maybe two feet, just putting its head in. Oh um, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, there can't be that much food within two two feet of the surface. Not that many no. fish, right? No, and you you can't expect there to be big predators uh, scaring fish and such up to the surface all the time, which is obviously a strategy that yeah. seabirds use, and presumably pterosaurs did as well. Although you have to wonder how safe it would be to be uh, foraging around mosasaurs or, or uh, yeah. eyelids or whatever. So yeah. Well, we better move on. So um, I think what we'll do now is listen to questions. Whoa. Yeah. Well, this is a first. I'm yeah. scared. <laughs> Actually, it's it's a softball, Darren. And there's only one. <laughs> there's only one. There's a, I should call it listener question. <laughs> Mark and Lard used to do a thing. Mark and Lard, you ever heard these two DJs? They used to do this, they used to do this segment called answers to listeners questions they say well our question this week is from karen of scunthorpe the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you'll be able to bit better an answer than that Maybe. so al's is from brian ruckley i don't know where he's from he's from brianruckley.com right um and he wants to know what would win a fight between a large <laughs> Arctodus. Am I saying that right? Mm. Arctodus the bear, yeah. Yeah, the, the bear. short-faced bear. And Andrew Sarkis. <laughs> I thought you said the question was on owl ears. Did I hear you wrong? You you did hear me wrong. I've got no idea where you got that from. <laughs> owl ears. <laughs> okay, sorry. Who would win serious, a fight between Serious Darren. Who would win yeah, a fight? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but Arctodus and Andrew Sarkis. Um, what an excellent question. That's something that I've pondered many, on many an occasion. Um, I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> However, oh, really? And, uh, of course, Andrew Sarkis, mysterious animal. Yeah, actually, we should, yeah, we should describe them. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, so Andrew Sarkis is this famous thing from um, uh, controversial sediments, either, ES, either latest Eocene or earliest Oligocene of uh, Mongolia, famous for this skull, which is something like a meter long, uh, has pretty big conical uh, incisors, canines. Um, the whole dentition is is formidable, and it's the shape of its skull. There's there's quite a bit of uh, discussion about Andrew Sarkis and. Uh, Tetsu version 2, I did a whole series of articles on it and its ostensible relatives. And Andrew Sarkis, shown in every single prehistoric animal book as kind of like a mega wolf, it's always yeah. shown as looking like a giant stripy wolf. Um, remember, we only know it from its skull, and its skull is weird. I mean, the, the zygomatic arches, that's the kind of arch-like bits of the skull that go from the cheek region to the, the ear region. They are enormous flaring structures in this animal. So the amount of meaning that the temporal fossae, the, 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 
the hollow areas on the side and up, upper surface of the skull were enormous. I mean, I guess going on for something like possibly 25, 30 centimeters across, the amount of temporal musculature this animal would have had is just crazy, huge, um, huge amount of jaw power. But then its snout is quite, <clears throat> is much, much narrower than the, the zygomatic arch. It's like quite, quite narrow. And then you've got sort of like a, a rounded rosette at the tip of the, the snout. And um, really interesting thing is it's kind of not a million miles away from what you see in spinosaurs. Uh, so long, narrow snout, but then this evidence for massive jaw musculature. We, the fact that we don't know what the body of this animal was like is, of course, a problem. Uh, but in recent phylogenies, it's grouped close to a group of mostly kind of hippo and pig-shaped um, hoofed mammals like entelodonts and hippos and early whales and things. So um, maybe rather than being wolf shaped, maybe Andrusarchus was kind of like a quite a, a leggy animal, maybe quite like a narrow, deep body, sort of like a, a a mega bison kind of thing, but with this weird carnivorous head. Really, really strange. And Arctodus, of course, is this giant bear um something like i think two meters tall at the shoulder supposed to be extremely proportionally long-legged and often imagined to be hyper carnivorous often, often imagined to be like a super predator but um um that turns out to be not not accurate the data from isotopes and tooth microstructure shows that it was an omnivore which is kind of more typical for bears so big big tall fast running bear with typical you know strong bear jaws and strong bear teeth who would win in a fight between Andrew Sarkis and Arctodus? Andrew Sarkis. Yeah. See, <laughs> I, that, that's what Brian thought too. And I, I looked at these animals and I I don't know. I mean, bears, I have, bears have claws, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. a tremendous, depending on what the rest of Andrew Sarkis was like, but if it's like a bison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was deliberately being silly there. I was going to build it up and just... <laughs> The, the concisest possible answer. Well, yes. it's, um, it's a fact. That fact. Bears, Hashtag it's fact. A fact, yes, that bears are badass motherfuckers. <laughs> Just lost our clean rating. You could, you, you're going you're gonna to censor it. Yeah. Um, people used to import African lions to, to fight bears in Alaska, thinking that they were going to get some... You, you know, people used to do all sorts of, sorts of horrible stuff to animals for entertainment, thinking they would get hours of entertainment, seeing these two animals rip each other to shreds. What actually happened is the fight lasted for the matter of five seconds. The bear just sp smash, just literally lifts a port and smash it down on the lion's back. Lion is dead. And a bear that big, Arctodus size, I do seriously... I mean, there are stories of, like, giant grizzly bears, you know, killing bison and... There's film of one from a few years ago killing a moose. Um, bison and moose are not going to be too different in size from Andrew Sarkis. So uh, I think a bear, uh, this is a speculation, but I think it's a reasonable one. I think a bear is going to be a much cleverer animal than Andrew Sarkis. Andrew Sarkis, as an Eocene, a Ligocene animal, uh, as is typical for most mammals of that time, you know, proportionally small brain compared to uh, modern carnivorans like bears. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, I. I I, I can see that a bear, a giant bear, would be a a formidable adversary and not something that's easily taken out by a, something that's got strong bite, long jaws, but um, maybe lacks the smarts and uh, I don't know. Yeah, we never. I don't know. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. We could find some DNA one day. Um, you know, Jurassic Park style, put them in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> right, we'll move on. Little Shop of Horrors. Huh, I've yeah, watched the right. I've watched the right film this week. Good work. Good work. The yeah. 1986 version. So yeah. I said last. Well, that was something else I meant to correct. I said last time 1982. How wrong I was. Yes. 1986. Yes, indeed. Directed by Frank Oz, starring a lot of famous people. Um, so you've watched it. I have watched it. And how did it end? Well. It ended with them killing the plant, and yeah, yeah the happy yeah, ending. That's what, happy ending. That's what, so you're aware of the unless fact you're a plant. The, you're aware of the fact that there's more than one ending. I am. That's now. why we're here. 
That's uh, why we're here. Okay, that's okay. why we're here, doing this podcast. So, I'm a big fan of Little Shop of Horrors. I saw it in 1986. I haven't, I'm obviously not a big enough fan to have seen the original, um, but um, yeah, but I know it very well, know, know the words to all the songs, that kind of stuff, know the movie well. And there's always been, there's always been this rumour that um, the ending, um, so so um, the, the Audrey 2 tries to eat, Audrey fails, um, Seymour... Um, challenges Audrey 2 says you know you got to stop what you're doing and Audrey 2 sings a song saying I'm a I'm a meagre mother from outer space and brings down the florist shop on top of Seymour Seymour is in a big pile of rubble but in the last second Seymour's hand comes out grabs some electric cable he electrocutes Audrey 2 yeah destroys Audrey 2 right uh and um Seymour and Audrey they end up with their fulfilling their this kind of little romantic fantasy they have. They, they have their own little house together and they end up somewhere that's green for Audrey sings about in the song. And <clears throat> there is kind of the possibility for a sequel or something because we do see a little uh, baby Audrey 2 in a flower bed. But it's a happy, rosy end, ending and uh, Audrey 2 is dead and, and the humans prevail. There have always been rumours that in actual fact the original ending was very different and it was kind of a bit dark, nasty. And um, uh, I should have written down the dates. When was it? There was a couple of years ago, a DVD um, came out with some stills or some short sections of this original ending. And then I think it's last year, the Blu-ray came out and that's got the original restored ending on it. And um, I've now watched all of that and the foot my God, I was just blown away. I cannot believe how different the film originally was. Um, basically, originally, everybody dies, Audrey 2 wins and takes over the world. And so there's a scene, there's a scene where Audrey 2 calls Audrey over using the telephone to come over to... Uh, Audrey 2, of course, brilliantly voiced by Levi Stubbs of the Four Top. Um, Audrey, so Audrey, the, the woman, comes over. Audrey, too, eats her. But Rick Moranis, Seymour, Seymour he, he comes in and he saves Audrey from Audrey, too. Um, and then he decides that he's got to get rid of Audrey, too. What originally happens is... So Audrey gets quite badly bitten by Audrey, too. And I always thought it was a bit lame that, well, hold on, Audrey, too, at that stage, has not only got like a <laughs> two-metre-wide mouth, but also has giant teeth and stuff. Even if it was just mouthing you, you might get injured. Originally, she dies. She's Makes taken sense. out back. Yeah, she dies from these injuries. She dies like within a couple of minutes. And, um, and as she's dying, she says to Seymour, she says that um, now, now that she knows what, what Audrey 2 is and what Audrey 2 does, she also now knows that the other people that have gone missing, like her former boyfriend played by Steve Martin and other characters, now that she knows that they've been eaten by Audrey 2, that she wants to be eaten by Audrey 2 as well, because seeing as Seymour looks after Audrey 2, if she is eaten by Audrey 2, then she will always be with Seymour. She'll always be like, you know, in his company. So strangely, he agrees to this. And there's actually a oh, well, scene. It makes sense, obviously, doesn't it? Your woman's just died. What are you going to do? You're going to feed it to a carnivorous plant, right? <laughs> yeah. So he carries her in and he, f and he feeds her dead body to Audrey 2 and she is eaten by, by Audrey 2. So that's the end of her. She's dead. Um, then later on in the movie, um, we don't know, well, I don't know exactly, exactly how, how, how it ends up, but, but there's still the scene where um, obviously Seymour tries to stop Audrey 2. You're not doing this anymore. Um, um, Audrey Two fights back, and Audrey Two pulls the pulls the, the the beam away, and all this all the stuff falls on top of Seymour. In the the, the ending that we know, um, Seymour survives being buried by rubble and ceiling and stuff, and get, grabs an electric cable, does the electrocution. In the originally he didn't. Originally he doesn't make it out of this pile of uh, crap. Um, Audrey Two grabs him, totally trusses him up in vines, tendrils, whatever, and slowly feeds him into his mouth. Audrey 2 eats Seymour, and there's no doubt about it, there's no ambiguity, Seymour is dead. Seymour is eaten by Audrey 2, and the scene ends with Audrey 2, like, picking his teeth, and he spits out 
Seymour's glasses and they land clunk, they land front of frame. Then the film ends, originally the film ended with a song called Don't Feed the Plants, which is basically shows what happens next. So you remember there's a bit where um, a character played by James Belushi comes up to Seymour and Audrey and says that he wants to sell Audrey 2s all over America. He's taking leaf cuttings and he wants to like market these things. And they're like, no, that's really bad. We've got to stop this happening. Well, that goes ahead. So millions and millions of Audrey 2s are sold all over America. And we actually see it happening. We see people buying Audrey 2s, people going nuts, you know, like trampling through supermarket doors and stuff to get Audrey 2s. And, um, and then we see what happens next. We see uh, Audrey twos bursting through walls and um, and uh, on in New York and climbing over skyscrapers, and literally, you know, laying waste to the Cleveland and other places. And uh, and it, the it, the film ends with um, two of them climbing up the top of the um, Statue of Liberty, and that is how originally the film ended. Audrey and Seymour are dead. Audrey 2 takes over the world, and uh, that's t- totally different kind of... I've been, yeah, I've read about this um, since you mentioned it, and um, apparently it's cost the, reportedly, that the original ending cost $5 million out of a budget of $25 million for the whole film. So it's a fifth of the, of the entire film's budget <laughs> went on an ending yeah. they chucked out. <laughs> but yeah. it, what's um also interesting is that's how the original musical ends so yeah. you know the original film wasn't a musical say um yeah, short thing that. not yeah, you didn't know that did you you do now <laughs> so obviously they turned that into a musical at some point off-broadway musical which had this ending this nasty ending yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but obviously that wasn't going to translate into big budget yeah, hollywood it's... No, I, I, so I've seen um, I've seen a few interviews with Frank Oz and other people, and they say that they showed the original ending. You know, they showed the movie with the original ending to test screenings, and people just hated it. They didn't like it. They didn't like seeing their main the main characters who they like. They didn't like seeing them killed. They just didn't like this depressing ending. So, the studio decided to axe it. Which, yeah, as you've just said, a lot of money was spent on it. That seems crazy. Yeah, um, I think today we're. I think today we're fairly, you know, kind of happy with the idea of. Uh, dark endings and in fact a lot of people like movies to be dark but maybe that wasn't the case back in 1986 i don't think that would fly for this either i mean i think the problem it really depends on tone because i think it was too comedic to shift into an enjoyable enjoying the darkness of it but it wasn't quite comedic enough to enjoy the black humor of it if you see what i mean i think they had a bit of a I'm just trying to imagine because I haven't actually seen the original ending, but I'm imagining that it was a bit of a tonal problem mm. Yeah, because you had too much sympathy with the main characters. They weren't just comedy buffoons. Mm. Um, and yet it was a comedy. So you didn't, you wouldn't want to, um, you don't want to shift gears into dark drama Mm. Yeah, <laughs> or something yeah, like yeah. this. So, it's so yeah, I can see why it'd be a bit of a problem. Interesting that it seemed to work in the in the stage musical, mm. but then maybe that's because the characters were less immediately human. If you see what I mean, often in stagey musicals, it's more about the spectacle of it, isn't it? There's also not the epic scale on in the theatre. Whereas one of the points of the movie is it shows it shows giant kaiju Audrey twos on the Hudson River Bridge and skyscrapers and things. and I don't know, that's kind of like an, an apocalyptic vision that, I don't know, yeah. just has a slight... Well, you think of, I mean, how many movies are there now that show cities and stuff being destroyed? And they do have a, a sort of slightly dark, melancholy edge that, uh, I don't know, you just don't get in the theatre. So you don't, you don't get without, spe- without big special effects, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, know. maybe. Oh, then speaking of special effects, uh, the um, the puppet, um, Audrey Two mm. was amazing. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I I I tried to look it up before doing the podcast, but I couldn't really find very much on that original puppet. I mean, it didn't spend very long doing it, but I probably should at some point. Um, the speed at which it could move and its lips and 
yeah and the tendrils and things uh, i was just looking at that I, I can't even imagine how they built it oh it's so clever and remember they must have made several of them as well because they have the the, the plant at several different growth stages the stuff yeah. the little details i mean there's a bit where audrey too is like drumming it's inverted commas fingers and and all kinds of yeah loads loads of them nuances that are just brilliantly brilliantly done and uh no it was just um i've, I've already mentioned mark witten the scene but mark, but mark witten put me onto this just came up in conversation oh by the way have you seen the new ending for uh or the original ending for little shop of horrors on io9 covered it there's a really good um io9 article <clears throat> incidentally they covered the great tit thing as well they, they liked my great tit article and do, do you watch American Dad? Ah, uh, yeah, I do. Funnily enough, about the same time as I had this discovered this amazing revelation about Little Shop of Horrors, I watched a, an episode of American Dad called Hot Water, and it's about it's a musical, um, and it's about a um, a killer hot tub, and it's basically Little Shop of Horrors but with a hot tub instead of an Audrey Two. So, uh, <laughs> and funnily enough, it has a a kind of without giving too much away, uh, it kind of has a dark ending as well. The which, original uh, ending? Does the hot tub <laughs> end up on the top of the Empire State Building or whatever? <laughs> the hot tub wins. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. I was a bit disappointed in the um 1986 version that didn't have the classic feed me thing. It did say feed me, but it wasn't done in the original. Uh, the yeah. original tone which was which you haven't seen but it's quite it's quite iconic feed me feed me <laughs> that was my highlight from the previous podcast <laughs> yeah um yeah well obviously you know they had to have an all singing all dancing plant and um if it was going to mm. sing that voice wasn't really going to work but it was a bit disappointing the, the song the songs are brilliant in that, that film they're very clever and so many cameos well is that the wrong word cameos so many famous people in that movie that kind of just brief appearances and it's like wow you were you really pulled some favors here yeah you, it's got some odd characters so bill murray in in that one who was john candy's in as yeah yeah but that character bill murray's character was played by jack nicholson in the original one right so yeah. the the um the masochist but mm. i don't he's no he hasn't got a connection to the rest of the plot does he no he's completely irrelevant he's no. completely irrelevant and they spend quite mm. a bit of time on him it's a bit strange it is i strange. wonder whether yeah, I, I thought that maybe he was going to feed himself to the plant because he wanted that i thought that mm. was going to be where they'd take that character it's almost like they were writing it and then just decided <clears> not to do that well well as as i'm sure you know any any movie any project in you know for tv or whatever the tortuous sinuous tale of you know how you how they got to the end product often things are there because they're there from early on because they were integral then later on they become the opposite of integral but they still have to be retained for some reason so they have yeah, to kind of like generally they're pretty ruthless about cutting things that aren't necessary yeah and yeah. i think you could cut every single scene that he's in without making the movie confusing mm. But, I wonder if it was but also, Steve Martin's. Um, yeah. They they knew this from the first one. They knew he didn't have any connection to it. So <laughs> they could they have cut him out. Him anyway. They still included <clears throat> him anyway. Mm. I think it's part of the part of the whole charm of the thing, is that they've got a completely irrelevant character in there that's played by Yeah, well, big names in both films. Mm. Although I'm not sure Jack Nicholson was a big name back in nineteen sixty when he played that character in the original. There's, I, I do like these stories when films give um, minor, minor roles to hugely famous people, just called, just for fun, just because that's they called a cameo, Darren. Cameo. They when they have cameo <laughs> roles, like um, is it Hot Fuzz? Hot Fuzz has got um, oh no, what's her name? Really famous blonde lady who plays. Um, I, I, we'll stop here because I'm just gonna yeah screw it up here. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well... Can you edit, edit a bit out? <laughs> I will, I'll just edit all that out. <laughs> have, you heard the, have you heard the Bigfoot news today, by the way? Oh, we should talk about that, yeah, let's talk about a bit, bit about Bigfoot. Yeah, 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 so this is got a long-running notorious saga and crazy, crazy stuff. We should do a, um, a Sasquatch podcast. 
We really should. That's a that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I'll put you, it down. You, you check out Monster Talk, the really good podcast mm-hmm. done by. I mean, I've, I've appeared as a guest at least oh, once. Yeah, I yeah. think it was. Um, I will today. Uh, uh, Sorry, did you want to say anything else on on Sasquatch and the Melbourne Kitchen paper? I I think I think we should do this next episode. I think we should do a Sasquatch Sasquatch um, episode. Cool, good idea. All right, let's wrap it up then. Okay. Where do people go to find you on the internet? Now this is a bit of a problem because you're everywhere on the internet now, aren't you? Am I? Yeah, like you're on the ash. you're on the Twitters, you're on the Facebooks, you're you're now on the Tumblers. Yeah, yeah. There's now a Tetzu. Three Tumblr. iterations of Tetzu. Yeah. Oh, and now we've got the Tetzu podcast website. So there's quite a lot. But so to find you on Twitter, where do they go? Um, Tetzu. At Tetzu. Wow. At Tetzu. One one At word. Tetzu. Big yes. T, big Z, Tetzu. <laughs> did you just say Z? I did. Oh, I, oh, I did. I did. You know why? It's because in the previous podcast, instead of saying Quetzalcoatl species, I said Quetzalcoatl spur, and apparently spur. that means I'm an idiot. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, continue in that vein. I, I've, I've honestly always said to myself, spur when I see, <laughs> you know, sp as an abbreviation for species. I thought that's what people did. The same as well, the same as nobody yeah. who says et, yeah. who says etc. Everybody says ectectec, right? So, <laughs> uh, so shout outs yes. to Mike Keezy and Jamie Hedden and and anyone else who, uh, yeah, so, yeah. I, I am going to introduce you in this podcast as um the Darren Nash, <laughs> the Darren Nash, Third so anyway, 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 thanks for that. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. At, at Tetsu on Twitter, there is a Tetrabod Zoology Facebook page. Obviously, Tetrabod Zoology, the blog, is hosted at Scientific American, and there is now a Tetsu Tumblr. And that is tetsu.tumblr.com. Indeedy. Yes. Okay. I'm uh, at johnconway.co. And yeah, just go there to find my Twitter and my Facebook and Tumblr. Um, yeah, sponsors, no sponsors. Shame on everyone. Um, perhaps they should just donate some money, you know, <laughs> pay for our hosting. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? it that would takes, be awesome. It only takes like I don't know, 10 quid a month and we're done. Well, yeah. It doesn't cost us money. Tr- That'd be nice, wouldn't it? A whole two episodes so far and just, oh dear, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shame on them. Um, Show notes are at tetzu.com and you can email us at tetzuthepodcast at gmail.com. Oh, they've got to buy our stuff. Buy our stuff, don't they, Darren? They have to buy our stuff. Yeah, yeah, what books, do we have? Yeah, yeah. So there, there is a there's a Tetrapod Zoology book. If you're interested in Tetrapod Zoology, you've got to buy Tetrapod Zoology book one, available from Amazon and all other digital retailers. Yep. And there's also a book that John and I have contributed to called All Yesterdays, which is available on Amazon, but also from Lulu and other sources. Yes, that's good. Well done. That was like a proper ad read. We should get a sponsor yeah. so you can do ad reads. Right. Okay, I think we're done. Excellent. Well, this was good. I enjoyed it. Did you? No, no, I'm just trying to sound professional. <laughs>